This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. My guest today doesn't need any introduction. You have already seen her books, like, everywhere. I even have the desk calendar version in my office. I'm speaking, of course, about the lovely Patricia Schultz and her popular book, 1,000 Places to See Before You Die. Today we chat at Hosteling International in New York about her new edition and the app that goes along with it, and we also get some insider tips about secret places around the world from the woman who's seen it all. Well, I am very excited to be sitting across from you because if anybody knows the amazing places to go in this world, it's you. So I want to first find out how did you catch the travel bug? Why travel? It's such a good question because when you think about where I came from, which is a very nondescript kind of hard scrabble 1950s riverside town in upstate New York, you wouldn't necessarily think that, oh, this is a kind of background that would give birth to someone who would go off and explore the world. But And we didn't travel much. I came from a very modest family. We went every August to Atlantic City. <laughs> Yay, the Jersey Shore. <laughs> I know, very. But hey, for a four-year-old, it was exotic. Yeah. And I was so excited Every year, at a very early age, I understood that, you know, I was leaving behind my bubble and, you know, we're hitting the high road and off to see places that were new to me. And I was in the backseat of the station wagon a week in advance, I think, with my suitcase packed and ready to go. And my parents, again, you know, what they did appreciate was curiosity. And what they appreciated was education. And they were open-minded enough for coming from an immigrant family background to understand that that education was not within the four walls of academia, but the Mm -hmm. world was your classroom. And so when I started to travel in my teens and 20s, they were very, very understanding. And really, for many of those trips, subsidized my wanderlust. So I, I really have them to thank. And I became friends in my high school with Latino girls, Mm -hmm. became very fascinated in this other language that they spoke, these peculiar foods that they ate, the music that, you know, had my toe tapping. And it was all another world that really, really just simply intrigued me. Mm-hmm. So I started teaching myself Spanish together with them. I went to one of their homes over summer vacation in Santo Domingo. It was my first passport. I was 15. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I had died and gone to heaven. And so then I went on to study foreign languages as a result of that and went to a junior year abroad in Spain. I, that just opened my world. And the rest is history. (laughs) But isn't that amazing how much influence parents have Mm. on your travel background? At least it was for me as well. Yeah. My first trip abroad was with my family when I was 10. And I loved it such that I knew this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. You know, somebody just, just last night told me that there have been studies done. He's in the travel world. And I know him through, you know, Travel Connections. And he said there are actually studies that show that children who travel with their parents before they graduate from high school are looking at what is pretty much a guaranteed illustrious future, either because they go on to careers that are particularly interesting, exciting, fascinating, satisfying, 
And they almost always, I think in far more cases than not, go on to university and finish university, which is not always the case of those numbers that show that children never travel. And not international travel. You know, it can be the great road trip to visit the Grand Canyon or the park down the road or to Jersey Shore. But it does something to you. I think it just has you aware that there is so much more. Mm-hmm. And it whets your appetite to see it, to explore it. You know, whether it's domestic or if it's far flung, I think that it really opens your head. Yeah, thanks, mom and dad. Yes, thank you. And there's <laughs> this great expression that says, and I put it in my first book because I adore my parents, and I romanticize, you know, the 18 years I lived at home. We never fought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there's an expression that goes, how important it is to pick the right parents. Yeah. <laughs> So whether you believe in reincarnation or not, I think I kind of hovered above the earth and said, wow, look at those two. Do I want to live with them? I love that. Yeah. So thank you, Mom and Dad, as you said. (laughs) So let's talk about how you got into travel writing. How did you put your passion for travel? How did you get into the writing? Well, I, I sure do wish, but it never happens that way, that somebody had knocked on my head and said, you know, you could be a travel writer because I spent years, years and years and years, decades traveling enjoying every moment of being lost or hungried or disgruntled or thrilled or satisfied or over the moon. But every moment of that time, I remember thinking, I really have to figure out what I want to do with my life. And it never really came to me that what I was doing could in fact be a profession or a career or at the very least a job mm-hmm. until by sheer chance with one of these trips away from home and it was in Key West it wasn't you know to Madagascar or someplace wonderful but it was just in the US and I was working as a favor to a friend of a friend of a friend as a freelance fashion stylist mm-hmm. And the editor who had come from the European publication from Italian Vogue was called home without any notice. Something happened. I think it was a family emergency. And he turned to me and he said, I haven't done this interview. Could you do it for me? It was for a local, very colorful, crazy guy that was a treasure hunter of sunken ships off the coast of Key West. And I said, sure, I could do it. And he left, and then I went back to my hotel room, and I cried (laughs) because I had never studied writing or journalism or literature, and I had never put a interview together. I wasn't quite sure what questions to ask or then how to kind of craft a interview out of it. But anyway, I did it. I survived the adventure of it and wrote the article, I think probably rewrote it about 400 times. But it came to me that, oh, this is what you do. These are articles here and there of which you create a portfolio that then presents you to be something of a travel writer. And you go to magazines and you get, and I think I can do this. And in fact, the next number of articles when I approached publications were quite easy to come by. So I was misled to think that it really was a very easy road. Mm I know, we laugh. Right. (laughs) It was beginner's luck, and I then hit a dry spot that lasted for many years. And yet I carried on doing a lot of work for free, 
you know, working other jobs at the same time, sometimes three and four jobs, but trying to spin from my travels abroad assignments that I could kind of eke out from different publications, some of which paid nothing, some of them I did on speculation. You never mm-hmm. knew if you were going to be paid at all, and yet you needed to pour your efforts and energies yeah. into it as if there was, you know, a check at the end of it all. Sometimes mm-hmm. there was, sometimes there wasn't. But what I did create was a portfolio. So when people then started saying, well, what have you done recently? What it can show me some of your work, I actually had something to show them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, before I knew it, many <laughs> years later, because it was decades it took me a whole long time for it finally to all come together. But I never was looking down the road. I was looking at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I was never foreseeing some future moment when I would be sitting pretty. Rather, I was reveling in the current trip or the mm-hmm. experience of the destination I was in in the moment and enjoying that and feeling pretty thrilled that what I was doing was a very unconventional and mm-hmm. very unlucrative lifestyle that had me live the life of a millionaire in terms of the wealth and the satisfaction of what travel brought me. So, you know, did I have the usual same old, same old back home that all of my friends did? No. But was I living a life that was fascinating to me? Yes. Mm -hmm. And thank you, mom and dad, because (laughs) there was no pressure other than my own pressure on myself to at least feel that I was moving forward, that I wasn't stuck, that I wasn't doing nothing and wallowing, that I was seeing new places, that I was making new connections and new friendships and new experiences, that I guess I just had a assurance that someday I would be able to connect all the dots Mm -hmm. and it would all come together in some marvelous way, the way it does in Hollywood. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's good you persevered with that idea. (laughs) I'm German, if not anything else. My mother's Italian and my father is German. And my stick-to-itiveness, my father was the king of stick-to-itive. If you found something you love, you stuck with it. And if you started something, you did it right and you did it well to the best of your ability. Abilities. And that fared well when I took on this job of a thousand places because it took me eight years to write yeah. for next to no money. I mean, publishers don't give you their credit card and say, here, go see the world and come home and write about it for us. No, yeah. they gave me a very <laughs> paltry advance and said, you know, make of this book, you know, the best you possibly can. And so I thank my German genes mm-hmm. for having me stick with a project, an assignment that really was bigger than life. It's so important. I mean, how did this idea even come about? Well, I was writing after that one momentous turning point in Key West. Many, many years later, I fell into this wonderful opportunity to write for guidebooks Mm -hmm. about Italy. I chose to live for three, four, five years, three years full-time, and then an additional two kind of commuting from New York, which is my home now, to Florence. Hmm in Italy. And I was offered this job to do a chapter on Tuscany in a guidebook about Italy. Mm-hmm. And I took it again for no money. <laughs> I mean, really, they had given it to someone else who submitted a chapter that was unusable. 
and they asked me if I could kind of step in and rewrite it. They had no budget left, and yeah. it needed to be done in record time, and was I up for it? And I said once more, sure, mm -hmm. <laughs> and went home and thought, how do you write a chapter? Yeah. I had never done anything, so, but it's amazing what you can do. Yeah. So I studied and bought other books, and I you know, just worked around the clock, and, and I did that chapter. They asked me to do other chapters for the next year. I kind of got slowly into the profession of writing guidebooks. I wrote for Fromers. I wrote for Berlitz. Again, they pay really nothing. Yeah. They don't cover your expenses. People are always amazed that, I don't know, they give you this open budget maybe and send you off It sounds more class. glamorous than it really is. Oh, and people don't know that. <laughs> But, and it's exhausting. Oh, the amount, the volume of work mm -hmm. to do in record time. Because oftentimes you don't know from one year to the next if you're getting that same contract again. Right. So you almost kind of don't know until you get the phone call or you get the contract in the mail. And then you have no time. Yeah. And you have no monies with which to buy your ticket or pay for your hotel there. So you're always kind of trying to work the system to make it happen and sleeping on the sofa of friends you've met along the way. And when you're going over there for one project, you've learned to then parlay it into other assignments with mm -hmm. other magazines that are for kind of parallel articles and such. So over time, I did learn how to make it work so that after all of my expenses were paid, it turned out that I was making maybe about 14 cents an hour. Wow. <laughs> if I was lucky, that yeah. was after I figured out how to do it. But I got to travel all over Italy and Europe, and I came to know it so well. I learned about things that had nothing to do with the guidebooks and so much more than the guidebook editors were asking for, so that I was very proud in the final product that I was then submitting because I was writing, I felt, better guidebooks than they ever had in the past from people who were saying, you're paying me what? Yeah. <laughs> and doing the minimal amount of work. And I think that what I'm trying to say is that simply if you love something, mm -hmm. as I always have travel, then you go way beyond the required mm -hmm. because you enjoy it because you're always looking to learn more and see more and do you know go the extra mile and because you're proud of what you ultimately submit because as a writer you want your written project whether it's an article a chapter or an entire book you want it to be the best possible and you want to share and you want to make sure that the information that you're putting out there is correct really just the fact checking alone mm -hmm. is enough to have you jump off the closest bridge <laughs> yes. when i found out what that entailed that was something of an epiphany because i too fit into this glamorous thing oh well i'll just travel from restaurant to restaurant right. and write up wonderful reviews about the glorious food and how lucky am i but no it's all of the crossing of the t's mm -hmm. and the dotting of the i's <gasps> a nightmare i believe it <laughs> I'm also so thrilled that you're a woman traveler because we need to get out there a bit more. It's amazing how many male travel writers sit across from me doing these interviews and I know we've got a wonderful shift going on and there's a lot of amazing women getting out there but I really feel like you're one of the pioneers of women mm -hmm. can do this. There are noticeably more men out there. Maybe for the most part they are more intrepid and more 
gung-ho and fearless. I like to think not, but there has to be a reason for the imbalance of Mm -hmm. men working in the travel world. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's changing. People like Mary Beth Bond, adventurers, and yeah, I, I, I'd like to think that we're seeing a revolution taking place of more women out there. I hope so. I Across hope so. the board, certainly you find it. Yeah. And when I go on press trips or when I go to you know openings or travel events of whatever kind, I do see as many I think women travel writers, at the end of the day, the the real numbers, I don't know if it's a true reflection, but I want to say it is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yes. (laughs) Go us. Yeah. (laughs) So let's go back to your first edition of 1,000 Places. You said it took eight years to research and finish. I know. I can't imagine. When I first got the contract, it was such a thrill. I mean, really, don't tell my publisher this, but I would have paid them. <laughs> they sat down with me around a, a, a round table, and we kicked around this idea of doing, you know, the best places around the world. My publisher, very frankly, said to me, how will you do this on no budget? Mm-hmm. And But because I had come from these years of writing for travel guides, I was such an old hand at that. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, not to worry, the Piece least of, of our problems. Yeah, yeah walk in the park. <laughs> But it did start out as 100 places, Mm. and then they added a zero because they thought it looked better. And then I realized that this would be a good moment to readdress the advance because (laughs) I was going from a project that I thought I could do in a few weeks to a project that I knew was going to kind of throw open the book to a different, very different kind of experience because these would be very far-flung places off the beaten track, you know, the unsung, the unknown, the unheralded, as well as, you know, a mix of the very well-known, the iconic, the Taj Mahals and the Grand Canyons. Mm -hmm. So I was thrilled but also daunted. It is something bigger than life. And nobody had yet done something of that breath. And he said to me, take one year and two if you need it. In fact, it took four and then six and then seven. (laughs) And during that, September 11th happened, 2001. And we were at the final stretch. It was the sixth, seventh, eighth year at that time. And suddenly the world, the travel world, certainly, if not the entire world, kind of stopped. Yeah. And nobody was traveling again. And that was deeply horrific to all of America on so many different levels. But it was very sad to me to think that the very thing that so thrilled me was then going to be put on a temporary hold. But my publisher said, well, not to worry, he said, because the dust will settle Mm -hmm. in every sense and that people will travel again. So it was a full year or two afterwards that the book came out. And it was very perfectly timed, in fact, because had it come out prior to September 11th, as was originally planned, it would have just gathered dust on the shelf. Mm -hmm. But because it came out when people were just starting to move around again, but people will always have that moment you know, recessions, terrorist things here and there, mortgages, college tuitions. There are always Mm -hmm. lists and lists of pages why people are putting travel on hold. But then I think they free themselves up with an epiphany. My God, there's no day like today. Yeah. You know, look at my friend who has just discovered 
her parents are not well, so she needs to care for them for the next many years. Mm -hmm. In this moment instead, let's say that I'm free, I'm untethered, I have the possibility. So let me carpe diem, make Mm -hmm. it happen, grab that trip. You know, my husband's available, my boyfriend's available, my next door neighbor has invited me to go along with her to a you know, family reunion in the south of France. Whatever, there are all kinds of opportunities, and if there aren't, then you make the opportunities. Agreed. So it came out in 2003. People really just embraced it. But those eight years, I could have taken another eight. I could have <laughs> taken another hundred because, you know, you travel, you travel, and you realize you've just seen next to nothing. Yeah. It's the more you travel, I realize what you haven't seen yet. Yes, and it's very humbling. I know. You know, people who instead get very jaded just astound me. Hmm. Because really, when you travel a lot, you should just come home and thank your lucky stars and realize how privileged we are. Mm -hmm. And what you saw in that recent trip is just such a drop in the bucket. So much to see kind of overwhelming (laughs) in a very, very positive sense of the way because you know that if you live to be 400 years old, you will never see it all. Yeah. And if you do, then you just go back to the very first and see it all over again, but with very different eyes. Exactly. And the place will be changed a bit. You'll be changed a bit. Yeah. It'll be a new experience again. I know. There's that wonderful expression about painting the bridge. You know, no sooner do you finish it than you have to go That's back right. and paint it all <laughs> over again. And that would be the case. But really, I don't think you'll ever feel that you've seen everything you've wanted to see. That hopefully will never be something that the average passioned traveler will ever, ever experience in their heart. And so congratulations on the 10th anniversary. Yeah, 10th anniversary, 2013. And yet it feels like just yesterday. Hmm. But it continues to grow, this idea of before you die. And after we did the world book, we did a book about the USA and Canada. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know if you know about these very scary figures that 70% of Americans do not have passports. That's right hard to believe. I know. And really, until just a few years ago, it was far lower. It was in the low 20s. Now it's about 30%. And much of it is because of these new laws that to visit Mexico, Canada, Mm -hmm. some of the islands that we actually need a passport. And so that Mm -hmm. bumped the figures to 30%. In some ways, I understand because Number one, look what we have in our backyard and how big is this country, is Mm -hmm. this continent Mm -hmm. that we call home. And secondly, well, there shouldn't be a second reason because (laughs) if you can afford the horrific prices to take your family to Disney World every year... Good point. (laughs) Really, don't you just want to use that money wisely? Because for that same amount of money, Europe, South America, Canada, those that are most geographically accessible, doesn't have to be crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. But you do need the inclination and you need the conviction that you got to make it happen and you want to bring the kids or you want that special time with your parents before they're too old or Mm -hmm. girl time, you know, Mm -hmm. with your best friend that you see like once every six months because you're both so busy. Yeah. You're texting all the time. (laughs) Well, you know, have some face-to-face experience. So it doesn't need to be expensive. I think people, the more they don't travel, the more they feel that it's just impossible. Yeah. Oh, but I've never traveled and I'm 50. Well, then there's no time like the moment. Yeah. (laughs) So what changed between the first edition of 1000 Places to this new edition that just came out last year? Well, I think a number of things. And first most is that 
I'm 10 years older, so that's 10 years of traveling under my belt, and I've seen so many new things. Also, the world is 10 years older, and look what has mm -hmm. transpired. When I was researching in the 90s, Yugoslavia, for example, was in the middle of a whole spate mm -hmm. of civil wars, and mm -hmm. so was off the radar. But now, Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, Bosnia, oh my God, they're some of the most beautiful yeah. places, and open and flourishing and ready for business, and full of European tourists, but very few still American tourists. So the Croatia and Slovenia are some of the more popular of those destinations. And also, a lot of Eastern Europe had just come out of those years of being under the Soviet bloc mm -hmm. and were perceived when I was writing the book in the late 90s as being kind of menacing and unwelcoming and, and scary, frankly. Mm -hmm. And not all that pleasant. You know, did you really want to stay in some of those hotels? And there wasn't a real infrastructure. There weren't guides and organized tours for people. So I did cover those and include those, but certainly not to the degree that I did with the revision. So those yeah. were far fleshed out and included many more of the Eastern European countries that were not in the first book, such as the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, I love. Mm -hmm. Romania, Slovakia, I think maybe they were in the first book, but just barely, so they were very fleshed out. Romania is fascinating. A lot of those European countries in the Eastern swath are still just just really now coming around. Romania doesn't yet have the euro. Go to Transylvania and Romania, and it's like another world. I love Romania. Yeah. I was volunteering there for a month in 2011 for my around-the-world trip, and I love it. Yes. I would love to see more of Eastern Europe. I just haven't yeah. yet. The young people are really kind of rushing towards the future, and mm -hmm. the older people are straddling two momentous stages in the history of Europe. And so it's interesting to see now, because in another five or ten years, it will be almost as if that period under Soviet domination didn't exist. Yeah. To have experienced it in the 90s, as I did, was really fascinating. To mm. experience it now is a tad less so, but still very, very special for what it is. But I really, as you said, I really encourage people to see it now. It's a very fascinating niche of Europe that is so far different from Western Europe. I love Western Europe. I love all of Europe. But Eastern Europe is particularly fascinating. Yeah, I fascinating. agree. And lovely people. They so really welcoming. are. Yeah. But so are people everywhere, right? Have you ever no. met people who were... You know, even the Parisians. I was going to say Paris, though. <laughs> They've got their own little uh, charm. In there. Yeah, but hey, I'm from New York, so everybody's we pretty can nice. Relate. Yeah, <laughs> it's an urban thing. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. American tourists can be very clueless. You know, mm -hmm. how much is that in real money? I mean, yeah. how embarrassing yeah. is it to, to hear? Do you speak American? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could you take me on the subway and show me how to get to <laughs> where I'm needing to go? Right. So. <laughs> now tell me about this app that goes along with the new edition. Yeah, well, it came out to coordinate with the release of the book last year, the revision. It's stunning. There are thousands of photographs, and it has created a real community of travelers. And you can list places you've been to and places you hope to go to. So you can create your life list or your wish list, or as everyone calls it, your bucket, bucket list. list. 
And you can tap into this community. You know, Patricia says that if I'm going to Cairo, these are the hotels, they're too expensive for me, or they're full, or it's not my cup of tea. Has anybody been there? What would you suggest? Is it still safe? Is Cairo still safe? Who's been there? You know, the book is out a year, but who's been there in the last two or three months? So there's that wonderful aspect of it as well. And it's just very universal. There are people yeah. all over the world who have signed on for the app, and it's much of the content of the book and immediately accessible, and I think just visually stunning, if I do say so myself. And available on iTunes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it's a very beautiful new edition the app. And I'm very mm. excited for you. Oh, thank you very much. Are you ready for your Traveler's 10 questions? Yes. All right. Always ready. Mm. And I'll make them short and sweet because <laughs> otherwise we'll be here for a day and a half. <laughs> what travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Uh, you know, just about any guidebook, mm -hmm. if well written. I sadly have to say that I don't do a lot of what is called recreational reading, mostly because I don't have the time. Yeah. There are wonderful travel writers who do literary things like Pico Ayer mm -hmm. and yeah. Thoreau, who maybe is a little too cerebral for me. But I love, I love travel magazines mm -hmm. because the visual for me is paramount. So National Geographic Traveler, I mean, they have yeah. the finest photographers. Oh, they'll spend a year and a half in one place waiting for the right light and the right moment. Mm -hmm. So to me, that will get me on a plane. When they do some of these coverages, for example, of you know the Papua New Guinea Sing Sing or a safari in Botswana, and I look at the photography, it's the nudge that I need to get me off the sofa. Agreed. What destination do you consider a best-kept secret? Well, you know, destinations as countries can be well-known, but some of their less visited corners mm -hmm. can be a best-kept secret. As countries go, there are, you know, what are called emerging nations, which may not be on everybody's radar. Nicaragua, to me, was a real eye-opener. Their neighbor, Costa Rica, doesn't know what to do with the numbers of tourists yeah. who have been coming for the last 10 or 20 years. I continue to love Costa Rica, but Nicaragua is almost as if it was Costa Rica many years ago. Mm -hmm. It's not as expensive. It's not as visited. The wildlife, the coastline, the colonial cities of Granada and Leon are really beautiful and lovely people. And Uruguay and South America. Oh, that's one of my favorite places. Yeah, that tiny little... I mean, you go there and it's not like nobody's ever been because just over the border is Buenos Aires, so mm -hmm. people go for lunch mm -hmm. to Uruguay or Brazil and Rio. They'll go for the weekend. Great wine region. Punta del Este is a real... Miami Beach kind of interesting place if you want to see a very un-American jet-setter kind of beautiful coastal getaway for you know the upper classes of mostly South America very great people watching mm -hmm. so there's so much to you know even within Italy which is the one of the most visited countries anywhere in the world you can still go into the corners of even Tuscany mm -hmm. even Umbria or the Veneto which and you're never going to be the only foreigner in town or you might be especially off season yeah in the shoulder seasons you know, Italy is one of those places that every travel writer 
is mentioning because there is still so much to see. We think we know Italy, but we don't. No, and it's quite small. Yeah. And you would think that it was all discovered years ago, but we're very pressed for time. Mm -hmm. So everybody does Rome, Florence, Venice route. Yep. But Sicily is not even belonging to Europe, let alone <laughs> Italy. They call Palermo the northernmost African country in Europe. Uh. And that's in the very south, in the very north, Piemonte, where they had mm -hmm. the Olympics. They expected all kinds of American tourists to come to Piemonte following the Olympics. Didn't happen. And those alpine towns, which are stunningly beautiful, you'll be the only American there. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and good food. Okay, I can bet. <laughs> what sight should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? Well, that's a very personal question, so I think what would pertain... I've got a list of a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I think you really need to be true to yourself. And do you love architecture? Do you love natural beauty? You know, architecture. You're an architecture buff. You know, go see the Taj Mahal. Mm. If you're a natural beauty buff... Maybe, you know, Iguazu Falls or Victoria Falls in Africa. If you are an art lover, then, you know, some of the great paintings of all time in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence or here, you know, Chicago Institute of Art. Yeah. You don't need to leave the U.S. Just hunt down those photos that you've studied since art appreciation class in eighth grade and see it in the here and now. So I think you just need to follow your heart and create your own short list yeah. of must-sees. Hmm. Let's see. What and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? That's hard. I know. Um, it's funny because somebody just said to me last week that my most memorable meal was a horrible, glutinous, week-old airplane food dinner <laughs> on my first trip ever out of the country because this girl had just worked her whole life and she had finally gotten her passport and was yeah. going to Paris. And she said, I'll always, that was the best meal of my life. What because, it represented. Yeah, she mm -hmm. said, I was on the way to following my dream. Yeah. And I got goosebumps yeah. when I realized that I am jaded because <laughs> you hear a question like that and your mind goes to all the starred restaurants of mm -hmm. Paris and here she was eating, you know, an old turkey sandwich and she thought she was <laughs> in heaven. Yeah. So again, very personal. Probably to me something that is just unexpectedly authentic and simple and delicious like you didn't expect mm. that you find in these out-of-the-way places that you stumble upon by sheer serendipity. Mm -hmm. You know, you're on your way to some hotel, but you stop at a roadside because you've gotten lost and you're hungrier than you can imagine and you wind up having something that's out of this world wonderful. Yeah, I love that. What was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road, and how could other travelers avoid it? There's so much that's just sheerly unavoidable. Yeah. I think what's most important is knowing that you can't avoid all of that bad stuff, but just chalk it up as experience. You know, they say if it's great, it's wonderful, and if it's bad, it's experience. Yeah. <laughs> we showed up in Casablanca for a 6 a.m. flight so, you know, you're up at 3, and you're at the airport at 4, and it's dark, it's black, and they're all speaking some kind of foreign language. And mm -hmm. I was traveling by myself as a female in an Arab country in Morocco. And When I'm thinking, was this? What year? A long time ago, but it could happen, like, 
today. Yeah, because Morocco today is still yeah, pretty for much a woman traveling solo. Yeah, and it's still black at 6 o'clock in the morning regardless of what year it is. So you're kind of feeling very vulnerable. And anyway, long story short, the flight didn't exist and hadn't existed in a long time. But it's that kind of misinformation that mm -hmm. you get. Thank God for the Internet these days, but you can't trust everything. And translate this experience to, you know, not a flight, but a bus or a train mm -hmm. or you know, a museum opening or anything. And I guess what I understood in that moment is that the world isn't going to end. Yeah. And I really have to believe that this is going to wind up being the highlight of my trip. And don't you know that I found this taxi driver who was going to, for very little money, drive me to where I was going to go by air with the 45-minute flight that turned out to be a seven-hour taxi ride for next to no money. Huh. But I did tell him that I was starving in the meantime and could he please take me to the best couscous in Casablanca. And he took me home to his mother's house. Oh, wow. <laughs> and his wife still sends me a Christmas, and they're Muslim, his wife yeah. sends me a Christmas card every year and it's been like way over 10 years. That's amazing. I know. So just believe, I think, in your heart. It may not be the highlight of your trip, but it's not going to be the worst thing that happened. Agreed. What passport stamp still eludes you? Oh, thousands. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Well, uh, not thousands because there aren't thousands of countries, but there are thousands of destinations. I have the, the China stamp, but do I know China? Mm -hmm. I have the Russia stamp, but do I know a lot of Russia? Mm -hmm. India. I mean, there are massive countries yeah, that I can't even pretend to say that I know. As countries, countries that I've not stepped foot in yet, um, Mongolia is on my short list to Mongolia me. Mongolia would yeah. be great. I always consider it like the Montana of yeah. Central Asia. Yeah. You know, big sky, empty country, sparsely populated, lovely people. I'd love to go there too. I almost volunteered. There were some horse herders, but I didn't. Oh. I didn't. Next time. Next time. <laughs> There's always a next time. What is your most cherished souvenir and why? My most cherished souvenir, you know, I don't give much credence to the fact, to the idea that you need a physical something. Mm -hmm. And I stopped even taking photographs a long time ago because those printout photos were stuffed into a shoebox and are in the back of my closet. Yeah. Now they're all digital to be seen once and then never found again because mm -hmm. your computer crashes and they're gone and they're not saved or backed up. So I really, really make an effort to try to remember it all in my head. Yeah. I have this incredible scrapbook in my head. Hmm. <laughs> so that may be my most cherished souvenir. And it's not real, and it's not three-dimensional, but man, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most interesting custom or tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? I love the idea of the siesta. <laughs> uh, my brother lived in Spain for two years, and he still does siesta. Really? Yes, he does. Oh, he doesn't. Like 20 live, years later. But he doesn't live in Manhattan. Yeah, he doesn't. <laughs> well, he lives in California, so oh, maybe well, they all go. siesta still. <laughs> it is so untranslatable to <laughs> midtown Manhattan. Right. Except maybe in your head or in your heart. Mm -hmm. But being Italian... My mother, who was born in Italy, but quickly living here, learned that you kind of eat on the run and all at once and all on one plate. But you know how in Italy they have the first course and the second queen, the third and the fifth, and it's 
I love the idea that life should evolve around your friends and a dinner that goes on for hours. It's very precious to me. I don't usually have those open evenings, but when I do meet friends, I'll make sure it's a restaurant where you're not rushed. Yeah. It almost always is Italian because of the all the cuisines in the world that I've come to know. I will always love Italian because what's not to love? Mm-hmm. And I love the fact that you can kind of walk your way through a leisurely dinner where each course is savored. Each one is, you know, sweet, sour, vegetable sides, principled, you know, then different wines. And, and to me, it just brings home the importance of the culinary aspect of each culture and how it's very unique to each and it's very special to each. But at the end of it all, it's really Italy. I mean, yeah. everybody knows that Italian food is some of the most delicious yeah. anywhere. But I do love that custom where, you know, every meal should be a kind of Sunday afternoon mm, where it slow goes down on. And yeah, enjoy. slow the whole slow food movement. Yeah. And really, nobody does food like the Italians. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, France. Sorry, Morocco, my other famous cuisine that I just love so much, Moroccan food with all the spices. But Italy, I think, really has a monopoly on. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? The quote that I open the revision with is that better to see something once than to hear about it a thousand times. Mm -hmm. And really what that is all about harks back to the Nike campaign of just do it. Yeah. Because you plan and you plan and you talk and you brainstorm with friends and you've got these elaborate itineraries and you know you talk some more and you plan some more and you wake up and you're 90. So I think to you know just do it. Just start. Just you know so you don't know exactly where you want to go. So just pick some place. You know it's all good. Mm -hmm. You've got so you're you're overwhelmed. Where do you even start? You know just start. One foot in front of the other. That's where you just go. One small step. (laughs) One small trip at a time. Yeah. And I think just not to wait. Mm-hmm. And much of that is waiting for the right travel companion. Because mm-hmm. people are so involved in their work and in their homes and families and you know, refurbishing and buying the new apartment or condo or house or the new car. And everybody always has a reason that they can't join you on this trip that you're hoping to make to X. It doesn't yeah. matter where. But I really encourage people to do it and to do it alone. And mm-hmm. when you travel alone, you realize that, you know, hey, I can do this. It's very empowering. Yeah. You realize you can. Not only did you, but you had the best time. And so maybe next time you don't need a traveling companion at all because there's a lot of compromise. There really know? is. That's yeah, how you, I chose to go around the world for that year was completely solo. Yeah. And I would it, do it all over again. It's a very, very different experience. Yeah. And I think really I can pretty much safely say a better experience. Mm-hmm because it very much is you with the world and not you with your somebody who used to be best friend yeah until that trip (laughs) and the world you know you're always seeing it through their eyes if they don't like it chances are you're not going to like it because you're influenced by what you hear and what you sense and you're going to places that you probably weren't of interest to you much in the first place but just to keep the peace and keep the other person happy. So I really encourage people to travel now because you don't know what the future holds. Yeah. And to consider traveling by yourself, even if it means going with the group. People always say to me, I went to Namibia by myself. 
but the group I was traveling with was really nice. Well, that's not by <laughs> yourself. But, you know, if that's what you consider by yourself, then fine, whatever. Whatever works for you. Because yeah. when you do travel with groups, it's great. You're not yet self-assured enough to go solo, solo. So you sign up with a group. And that's fine and wonderful. Mm-hmm. But truly to go kind of, you know, on your own independently. And that's something that is a very invaluable experience. Yeah. Uh, what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? Oh, and profound it is, because if you stay home and never leave, go beyond the village gates, you'll never understand that people are wonderful everywhere. Yeah. And all of these destinations, you know, the, the evil axis, what were we calling all of these you know, mm-hmm. countries of dispute, and countries that appear to not like America much, those are the governments and Mm -hmm. those are the faces and the image that you'll see on your six o'clock news. But to go there to countries that are not closed to tourism, you may think they are, but there are very few places that we can't travel. We Mm -hmm. can even go to North Korea if we want to. Mm -hmm. But um, there are many, you know, especially in this day and age, it's mostly the Middle East. We're not welcome there. No, we're very welcome there. And the people are some of the most welcoming and hospitable because they've been welcoming people for thousands of years with the trade routes that pass through the Middle East. So I think it's just important to keep your head and your heart open and understand that the people are not their government and more often than not turn out to be, you know, dispel every discrimination and misconception that you have. And I'll close on this quote by Aldous Huxley who said that traveling is all about going to a destination and finding out that the world is quite wrong. Yeah. And it's so true, isn't it? It's so true. There are wonderful people everywhere, even in New York City. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sitting down with me, and best of luck on this new edition. Thank you. And I look forward to the 20th anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. And good luck to you. Thank Thank you, Christine. As you can tell, Patricia is one of the loveliest people you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting. So make sure to update your old version of 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, download the app on iTunes, and follow Patricia online at www.1000places.com and on Facebook and Twitter. So get out that pen and paper and start jotting down more items on your bucket list. And until next time, get out there and set the world on fire. <laughs>